today we have Bonnie Beans, a.k.a. Sergeant Rodriguez, a.k.a. Gabby Lewis. <laughs> what an intro. Uh, yeah, I love the uh, the Bonnie, that, that's Bonnie Beans, right? Where you're eating Bonnie the beans. beans. My family um, owned a bean farm for that one, yep. Whenever you ate the beans, your facial expression, it looked like the beans were not very good. You know, I hate to say it because it is my family's company, Cough and Spill Beans, but the whole <laughs> premise of the, the video is that you eat the beans, you cough, them, and you spill them. So, but they weren't that good, you're right. We're, you know what? I don't even know how you guys come up with any of this stuff. It's like you're just laughing to each other in the basement that you think it's funny and then you make it a video. That's pretty much the process. Um, Some of the wilder ideas that required extreme planning and whatnot, we we usually X and A those, but um, majority of the ideas do come from the giggles in the basement, yeah. (laughs) One of my favorite ones is when you were cleaning the outside and vacuuming the lawn lawn and sweeping the trees and all that shit. Yep. <laughs> it just fits you. I feel like what you guys have for branding, your branding is on point because it's completely authentic to who you guys are. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I would say that, you know, when you're trying to uh, put a band out there or an artist out there, um, at least for us, a lot of that was really unconscious. There wasn't... Um, you know, we're going to brand it. It was never a thought like that. It was kind of just an evolution through the years of uh, just really us being who we are. Um, and then just with years of, of content, you just kind of start to see patterns emerge. So I wish I could say I was that planned out, but no. <laughs> what I love about you guys as people is that you and Isaac are both very intelligent, but you like stupidity. Oh, yeah. Dude. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's, yeah, 100%. Your, uh, your TikTok is like Weird Sister 69 or something like that, right? Well, yeah. I mean, what other, what other number would it be? <laughs> weird Sister 420. Mm, yeah. Well, 69, you know, a little, a little freakier. Yeah, it's a little <laughs> freakier. So, you grew up in Florida. Yep, Florida and Canada. A little split situation there. Why did you uh, also live up in Canada? Did you guys have a house up there or something like that? Um, yeah, so my mom is Canadian, and my grandma had a huge, awesome house. It's like our house here, only like four times bigger. And there was like a woods in the backyard, so I grew up um, just being about half a year in the house. My cousins lived there. We had lots of fun because um, my mom's dad was really sick. He was in the hospital for a while, so we just spent a lot of time up there. And that really kind of sparked my imagination because we were always just playing dress up and playing in the woods and inventing all these little worlds and different creative games. So that is a, that played a huge role in my childhood for sure. I'm trying to imagine what you were like as a child. What were you like as a child? <laughs> That's a crazy question. Um, I was super creative, um, super, super just always wanting to play and have fun and be outdoors. And then when I got into music, um, you know, through my pretty much age 12 to present, I just turned into like a super nerd and just practiced a lot of piano and played in a lot of bands. Um, But definitely my early years were more carefree and kind of creative, just fun. What was your favorite toy when you were a kid? Oh, man. 
Um, how little are we talking? What is the first thing that comes to mind when I ask that? Well, I really did love my Furby back in the day, which is kind of lame to say, but I love that thing. Um, I had like a, I had Furbies, I had Beanie Babies that I really liked. Um, but my bike, man, my bike was, was definitely, I, I scratch all that. It was the bike. It was my favorite toy for sure. What kind of bike was it? Um, it was like one of those next brands or whatever. Oh was, yeah. And it was purple. And I begged my mom for so long, like, please, please, please. And finally, like one birthday, um, she had like a sheet over in the living room and it was my present and I was so happy. <laughs> what did you do when you got the bike? Did you go out and get into trouble once you had it? You know, unfortunately, I was a really disgustingly good kid. I did not rebel. I didn't do anything. I was just terrified of my mom. She was just such a taskmaster and, like, definitely wore the pants. Um, When I was 15, I started sneaking out of the window, uh, my bedroom, to go see boys and stuff. But that's that's the only time I was a little bit rebellious. So... I can't imagine you being a bad kid. I wish I was. I feel like you were very straight-laced. I was. Yeah, unfortunately. I I was, too. (laughs) I didn't do anything. I didn't drink. I didn't smoke weed. Me neither. (laughs) I didn't do anything. Yeah. It wasn't until much later that I became uh, degenerate. Yeah, me too. It wasn't until actually really my (laughs) mid-twenties. When you met Isaac? Uh, yeah. (laughs) I gotta be honest, yeah. I mean, because I went to college, and uh, I had a little fun in college, but I was really very serious with with my studies, so um, didn't really start letting loose until (laughs) mid-twenties. University of Michigan, that's where you went? Yeah, School of Music. Mm -hmm. What was that experience like going to music school? Um, well, it was intense. Because I was going for classical, and um, it was a really good school. I had a scholarship, but it also wasn't cheap, so I wanted to really maximize my experience there. But amazing, amazing education. Some of the you know, best professors in the world for music. I had a lot of cool opportunities to study abroad, you know, in Europe, and um, got to, you know, form and conduct an orchestra. Um, got to compose a piece that my group played. So where did you go in uh, Europe? Um, well, when I was um, 18, I did study abroad for a month in Prague. Um, and that was for like a history course. That was like a different kind of thing. But then through Michigan, I did a summer in Paris where I studied contemporary music. So we went over there and um, basically studied through an American university, Eastman School of Music. But the classes were all in Paris, and we went to a ton of performances, really avant-garde, experimental shit. It was cool. Back then, I didn't appreciate it as much, because um, I was really into like Bach and traditional, like older classical music. So I was kind of snobby and like, oh, what am I listening to? Were you to? stuffy? Oh, yeah. Like, yes. I was such a... I was pretty pretentious, honestly. Um, How were you pretentious? Oh my God. I mean, I don't know. I never would have even dreamed that I would be, you know, starting a band called the Weird Sisters and not reading music and playing by ear. I would have, if you told me that back then, I would be like, no, it's just not even possible. So Yeah. Cause you can read music and do the, the whole nine. Yeah. That's yes, I can do that, but I haven't really used that for, you know, a couple of years now. So I couldn't read music really until I came to Nashville. I, I could read a little bit, but I got kind of obsessed with doing it 
just because I felt like if I'm going to be speaking a language, I want to know how to like write and read the language as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Because it's pretty fundamental and not everybody needs to do it. You know, like Muddy Waters didn't know how to read or write music. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. You don't need it at all. No. Um, But I think your background has always been very impressive to me because um, I've been doing this since I was a kid. But to imagine that you learned this, you know, already as an adult, that's hard. It required a lot of discipline and a lot of drive. So, yeah, I mean... Uh, I might, I might be on the spectrum too. So that might be part of the reason why. Oh yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, growing up and playing, I always had people drill into me that I needed to like learn how to read music and I really brushed it off. I would try, but it was quote unquote too hard, Mm -hmm. which really just meant I wasn't willing to put in the time to get better at it. That's what it always means. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I was actually in band in high school. I don't know if I ever told you about that. I don't think so. I want to hear about it. Yeah. So I was in band freshman and part of sophomore year playing bass. Uh, I hated my my band teacher. He He did not respect electric bass as an instrument. So that was the first part of it. I also couldn't read. I played rock and roll. That's what I liked. Mm -hmm. I was super into punk rock and like emo music and then all the classics, the Beatles, the Stones, all of that. And I feel like a lot of classically trained musicians look down upon that. Yeah, some of them do. But the ones that I've always respected most um, throughout my experience, they haven't been that way. It's usually the ones that um, either don't understand or or they, they're just kind of afraid of what they don't understand. So they just kind of will eschew it. But That's actually similar to, uh, to punk rock and I guess all other forms of music too because the scene that I really grew up in, it was like a punk and metal scene. That's what it was in Maine. You didn't really have anyone playing like funk or soul or anything like that. At least the kids. You know what I mean? Like high schoolers. That wasn't what it was. It was a lot of playing at VFW halls, playing in people's basements. There wasn't too many venues to actually go play a show at if you weren't a professional musician already. Mm -hmm. And then I started playing with the Midcoast School of Music and kind of all that changed because I finally had a teacher that was like, yeah, you're good, but you're not as good as you think you are. Yeah. As opposed to my band teacher that basically just ignored me. <laughs> like he wouldn't even let me turn on, turn my amp on. So I was just standing there like holding my bass. Um, so was this like a um, like a concert band situation? Yeah. Oh, so he probably wanted you to be playing upright bass. Yeah, but I didn't have an upright bass and the school didn't have an upright bass. You know, that's... That's just unforgivable behavior. When you have a kid that's ready and excited and wants to be there, to turn them away because they don't have the right equipment and you don't even have the right equipment, that's, that's unforgivable. Yeah, well, I didn't give a shit. I was just like, <laughs> fuck this. Yeah, totally. And fuck you. Um, and looking back on it, it's funny too. When you're a kid, you meet these shitty adults and you think they're shitty to you, but you don't know that they're also shitty out in the world. You know what I mean? And that other people don't like them. Probably other teachers hated them. Because I found out later, he had a bad reputation among musicians, like professional musicians in the area. No one liked him. Yeah. I also had 
uh, a music theory teacher who was also the choir teacher. Mm-hmm. And he didn't like me either. He was just very, uh, very hard on me and just, I, and I never liked being like, oh, that person didn't like me. That's why I didn't succeed. I felt like they really didn't care if I succeeded or not. Cause I couldn't, I wasn't in, in their defense. I wasn't making the effort to get better, but if they would have shown me the steps of what I needed to do, I would have been more apt to try or they would have tried to reach me because so much of having a good teacher is someone being able to read the way that you learn and tailor to that. Absolutely. And I think the biggest problem with music education is that a lot of times there's a one size fits all approach, especially when, you know, in their defense, they're usually spread very thin, they're underpaid and, you know, they don't know how to get through to every kid or necessarily have the time to get through to every kid. Um, but the, at the end of the day, if you're a music educator, your number one priority should be sharing the joy of music. And if you can't get excited and, and spread that excitement, then you really have no business in that position, I don't think. That's why I'm not a teacher. Yeah, I could definitely see that. I think the other thing, everybody always talks about the arts being in schools and how important they are. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I agree with that. Why? Because because of my A, my own personal biased experience. Mm-hmm. And B, I think if a kid is really drawn to something and they really do like it, and maybe this is just my personality, they'll find a way to do it. Like I found a way to do it. I had to beg for like a year to get a bass. I wanted to be a bass player right from the get-go. That's what I wanted to do. I didn't want to play guitar. Like I had a guitar for a minute. But as soon as I was, I had a guitar and I was able to hold it in my hands, all I wanted to do was have a bass. It was all I dreamed about. It was meant to be then. Yeah. I got my first bass. I was in the eighth grade. It was right before, uh, I think maybe spring break or something like that. Because up north you have a winter break and you have a spring break and they're each a week. Um, and I finally was able to get it. And as soon as I started playing, I just never looked back. I knew that's always what I wanted to do. And in addition to that, it's crazy to think at such a young age, like how my life was decided in that moment. Yeah, I can relate to that because when I was um, 12, I was homeschooled. So something people don't know about me. No one would know because I seem fairly well adjusted, but I, I don't know if I'd call you well adjusted, but I get what you're saying. <laughs> oh, thanks, Taylor. Jeez. Um, yeah, I was homeschooled. I went to school for grades one and two because when I was a little little girl, my mom had a brain tumor, and um, fortunately, she survived it. But she wanted me to go to school in case you know something happened down the line, and I wouldn't be like a fish out of water. So I went to school for two years, and then I ended up leaving because I. The story goes, I told her, Mom, you got to wait in line to go to the water fountain. You got to wait in line to go to the bathroom. All of the walls are brick. There's no windows. Why am I in prison? And she said that she didn't have an argument for me. So I ended up getting pulled out. And then I just focused on music. And here I am today. So. What was your daily life like when you were homeschooled? <laughs> well, I was very hard to structure. Um... I was great at English and history and social studies. I was pretty abominable at math and science, and my mom was not good at it either, so we kind of let those slip by the wayside. And I straight up like flunked the SATs so hard. 
But I got into school because of my audition. I was a performance major, so they didn't give a shit. Yeah. Um, and then I ended up graduating Michigan with like a 3.9, so it doesn't fucking matter. All those tests are absolute waste of time. Bullshit. Yeah, I did, uh, I did horrible on the SATs myself. I didn't know what I was going to do because I felt like, like when you're about to be a young adult in the world, you really don't know what's about to happen. No, and no one prepares you, and they just shove you this... They feed you this agenda that, yeah, if you don't go to college, you're never going to become anything, but it's all a scam. My every dollar that I've ever made in my life has not been because of my degree. The most fulfilling experiences I've had have been because of my degree. What I can contribute to the Weird Sisters is because of what I learned throughout my whole education. But to this day, it has not monetized. I don't care about that. But if you're going to go to college and you want to see a return, you better major in engineering. You better do pre-med. You better do something that is more technical. Otherwise, you might as well be flushing it down the drain. Yeah. No, I, uh, I was going to go to college. I had gotten in based on an audition myself. It was for wow. Cornish College of, of the Arts in Seattle. Wow. I really wanted to live in Seattle. Um, that was the only school I, I had uh, applied to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had gotten in. And... Uh, it was like $200,000 or something like that Oof. by the end of it. Yeah. And it even at that age, I was like, if I'm going to be a musician, I probably shouldn't go to college. Smart. I just need to get jobs. And I always had some shit fucking job that I hated. There were some jobs that I really liked, but... <laughs> I I hated having a job because I was like, I just want to be a musician. You know, this is all before the podcast shit too. Mm-hmm. Before I even knew that was a possibility. Yeah. Um, and that's, you've definitely found your calling. Like, yeah. I think you're half music, half podcast for sure. I would agree with that as well. Um, I think the podcast thing, it was the same way with, with music in a way. Like music will always be my first love. But with music, I was such a big music fan and music geek, and I got so obsessed with it that the only lateral move was for me to play. And then by the time I started doing podcasts, I was so obsessed with listening to podcasts, listening to Uncle Joey, listening to Joe Rogan, Bill Burr, that the only lateral move at that point was for me to start a podcast just to scratch that itch. Yeah, and get the experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was all unplanned, you know, looking back now that uh, I'm 30, I can look back on my experiences of my 20s and realize like, oh, shit, I, there was some plan in motion that I didn't even realize I had in motion. I was just wanting to do stuff. I didn't care. I didn't want to sit still. I just wanted to be working on something. Yeah. Because so much of my time and my from ages 18 to 25 was spent just focused on working and having a job and doing this and doing that. And I had impulse quit this logistics company I was working at. I don't know if I've ever told you this. I don't think so. I was unemployed for like three months and I had just gotten a new apartment. I had been living with a roommate. I had been in Nashville maybe eight or nine months at this point. Moved into my own place because I had a horrible roommate situation when I first moved here. And then quit my job like two weeks after. And that's when I started the podcast. And 
the first couple I, I just recorded, I didn't even do anything with because I didn't know what I was doing. And then as time went on, I'm like, I can put these up and I can really do something with this um, mm-hmm. or at least share it, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you only really learn through doing and it, it's kind of funny, like a non a little segue, but I was only supposed to be in Nashville for a year. My plan was to come here. I said I wanted to study with Marianne Ploger at Vanderbilt. She's one of the most respected and revered music teachers in the world. And my plan was to study with her to prepare for my master's auditions for conducting. So I would be here a year, and then I was going to peace out and go to school, finish my degree, and either get a job conducting or do a PhD or a DMA, doctoral thing. And during that time, I met Isaac, and he showed me synthesizers, and he showed me what it meant to jam. I'll never forget, we went into my conducting professor's studio at Vanderbilt, because I had a key then, and I was playing piano, and he was playing guitar, and he said, here, just these two chords, let's just kind of mess around on them, and I was like, mess around, what do you mean? And I was bad, like, I didn't know what to do, I didn't, the concept of just playing something off the cuff, it was something I just hadn't experienced, so we started doing that, and then you know, three days in, I was at his apartment every day, just jamming with him. Late at night, we were just jamming, 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 jamming. And then within probably a year and a half, we started the Weird Sisters. And then I eventually, I started my own orchestra. I was conducting three different orchestras for a time. Um, And then I just decided one day to walk away from it all because I couldn't deny the joy and creative freedom and fulfillment that doing that you know, provided me. So, well, I would really say that was how our friendship started as well was the, the jamming. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> we did the everybody knows that's listening to the podcast. We did Gina, 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 Blackbird, all that oh, shit. Yeah. But we would jam too when we were just hanging out, like before and after practice. And we liked hanging out with each other and just jamming and laughing and being stupid. Yep. And that was really the start of it. That's how the start of, I think, all my greatest friendships in this city have been. It's, it's been some kind of jam at the core. And that's really just the magic of Isaac. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't speak enough on um, just what he's done for me as a musician and a person. He's just, he's such an incredible person. Isaac is the only person I've ever met that's like Isaac. I know. <laughs> There's no one else like him. And I've actually, I read one time that... The biblical name for Isaac, I think it's, or maybe Hebrew or something like that, it means laughter. Mm-hmm. It's Hebrew, yeah. And as soon as I heard that, I was like, he is aptly named. He is, and just light. He's just full of light. Yeah. Yeah. We played some shows together recently. Oh, yes, we did. We played a couple of shows. Mm-hmm. And the first one was over at the Color Book. Color Block. The Color Block. Oh, yes. Excuse me, That's the Color okay. Block. Um, and it was a house show. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of fun. We did a couple of rehearsals yep. beforehand, which I really appreciated. Me too. And you guys b- broke out the hardest material to play first, which, which I also appreciated. Because as a hired gun, you go into situations and you don't always – you're trying to decipher what it's going to be. Like, what is the hardest tune? What do I need to spend the most time on? Mm-hmm. But right away, you guys were like, these are the hardest ones. We're going to do these first. Yeah, that's how I've always approached. Even with classical, look at a piece. I always would 
thumb through the pages, okay, what's the hardest section? I'm just going to tackle this first. Because then after you do that, everything's, you know, just down the mountain. Mm-hmm. So. And while we were playing, we were playing Mystery Trips in the Night. Mm-hmm. And the power went out. It mm-hmm. shut off on us. Yeah, that was nuts. And Christian, Christian from the Blam Blams, <laughs> he's been playing drums. Mm-hmm. Uh, he took a solo, and then the power came back on, and we finished the song yeah. and finished the set. Isaac was like, play the drums, man. And, like, the sound guy was nowhere to be found. Like, he didn't even know that it happened when he came back. I, I found out after the show that, hey, if you're out there, whoever you are, random person in the audience somehow figured out what came unplugged, and they plugged it in. That's the only reason that we actually add sound. <laughs> it was a good gig, though. It was um, awesome. I love, I love Clarksville. It's my favorite place to play. Um, everyone there is just a true fan of music. They want to party and have fun. Um, we've had some of our best live experiences in Clarksville. It was fun as fuck. Um, yeah, I never played in Clarksville before, so I wasn't sure what to expect. Because when I think of Clarksville, I think of military town. Yeah. But we went up there, and they were hungry to hear music and excited to hear music. And they're freaky. I mean, those kids get down. Yeah, they're, they're like they're, dancing. They're weird. I mean, they just, they like all the weird kind of avant-garde, strange stuff, which is, you know, it's right up our alley, so. And that was also the first night that my bass amp gave me some issues. But we'll get to that later on. No big deal, man. It, it was about time something would happen. You put a lot of mileage on that thing. Yeah, well, <laughs> it ended up frying, and uh, John Eldridge, he told me that those amps are made for like three – he looked up how long the parts are like made for, and it's for 3,000 hours of playing time. Oh, yeah, you've definitely met that, I'm sure. Yeah, I've had the amp for maybe three years now, mm-hmm. and it's been a good amp, but I'm going to have to get something more powerful now. Well, especially if we're going to keep playing. Again, yeah, so, eh? absolutely. Well, that's the other thing I wanted to, uh, to talk to you about because Isaac had given me a call maybe like a month and a half ago and asked me to, uh, to play with you guys. And you're using a bass player, which you've never used a bass player because you have been the bass player. My left hand. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> so how did you kind of get to that decision that you wanted to start using a bassist? Well... It honestly was like pulling teeth for me because I'm pretty territorial when it comes to my role in this band. And something that I always loved that set us apart was the fact that, you know, we had a left-handed synth bass player, which was me. But what ultimately decided it was I could do it, but I wasn't free to play whatever, whenever. I always had to be holding down that part, whatever it was. So that was part of the reason to free me up, but also part of the reason was sonically, um, the synth bass just didn't have quite the meat that we needed for how heavy our music can get. So it was a two-part decision and, you know, through switching out band members and kind of going back to our roots with just me and Isaac as a duo, that's how we really realized like, all right, if we can maximize what we can both do, we really should get a bass player to, to fill that role. The end is closest to the beginning. Yes, it always is. Full circle now. Yeah, how we come. So yeah, well, I, I mean, I got to know the Weird Sisters as like Gabby and Isaac's thing, mm-hmm. and that was always my impression of it. And I've I've liked all the iterations that you guys have had, but something feels more 
pure when the two of you are at the helm of it and kind of the two-headed monster deciding what is going on. Well, yeah, because, you know, having the singer was great. Uh, Caitlin's awesome. She's a great singer. Um, But at the end of the day, like, you know, we were writing, you know, I don't know, 90% of all the music. And a lot of the music we were writing, we were writing more for female vocal, um, which is great. It was beautiful music. But at our core, um, we're really kind of more of a heavier funk rock band. That's just who we are. And we were kind of drifting more towards beautiful melodies and vocal harmonies. And that just really wasn't who we were as a band. Yeah. So it took us a while to figure it out. And I'm grateful for all, all of those gigs and the experiences. But now it's, I feel like we're really getting down to business. Absolutely. Yeah. There's definitely, uh, you guys have a, a swagger in your step again that I haven't seen in a long time, you know, I'm not saying you guys weren't good or anything like that before, but there's something more pure about it now. Yeah. I mean, I, to be totally frank, um, I kind of fell out of love with the project a little bit, um, in the past couple of years and I didn't realize why, but now I know it's because in order for me to be happy with this, it really needs to be like a 50, 50 deal. I don't want to consult anyone. I want to only consult Isaac and, call the shots because we're both very dominant personalities so when you add someone else in the mix um you really it just doesn't for us it just doesn't work yeah (laughs) well that's a part of maturity too is understanding what you really need to get done Mm -hmm. you know and it doesn't always feel good when you figure out those things and like going through them they can be very unpleasant but you guys have managed to get to the other side, and some of your songs now are the best songs that you've written. I agree with that, yeah. Like Live and I Learn. <laughs> That's probably one of my favorites. Either that or Ultraviolet. Um, and I remember when I heard the, the demo for Ultraviolet getting ready for the gigs, it really blew me away because it was a side of Isaac as a friend I've always known, but he hadn't communicated through music yet. Mm-hmm. And that song communicates that part of Isaac, the, the spiritual aspect, the jammy aspect. Mm-hmm. And the heavy, heavy aspect. Yeah. yeah. Well, it takes, it takes time to find your voice. And, you know, Isaac, he's an amazing frontman. He always has been. But there was a period where he just wanted to be a guitar player. He did not want to be frontman. He wanted to just play guitar. And he got to do that for two years. He had his fun. But now that he is in that role again, a frontman... No one's ever going to take that away from him. He yeah. just, he's, he was born to do that. I agree. Yeah. He, it's been good, like, seeing Isaac from the other side, behind, you know, as opposed to being out in the audience. Yeah. Um, and I feel like I've learned a, a few things playing with you guys. Uh, it's just because now I'm playing so frequently between you guys and Violet Moons and whoever else calls me that mm-hmm. um, when you play with an artist, every artist is different and as like a hired gun and you're walking into a situation. Um, I already knew I had a good feeling, like a strong feeling about what you guys wanted from a hired gun, from like a player coming in. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I felt like, okay, this is what they're going to want. A, be prepared and B, ask questions if you don't know. Oh, and you and asked your questions. I ask, I ask a lot of fucking questions. I love it. Because I want to I do a good job for people, too. Like, I never want to be the guy that's like, 
not showing up ready. It's like I might show up not knowing how to play something, but can you show me how you play it? Like that fucking riff on Live and I Learn. Yeah. That took me a minute to get. I had to like break out the metronome. And I told you, playing with you guys, it's a chops gig. Like you have to be a player in order to play with the Weird Sisters. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's a good thing. It's a good thing because it's funny. A lot of the stuff in Nashville you play, it's not necessarily chops gigs as a bass player. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of supporting the vocals in Route 5 if you're doing the country thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But with you guys, you actually have to uh, know your shit musically. Like, I have to know, like, I feel like all the hours I put in, like, learning a little bit about theory and a little bit of how to read, even though I didn't have to read anything with you guys, it all contributed to the fact that I was able to show up and get the job done. Yeah. I mean, that's it's it's all about... um just being prepared and, and really, you know, Isaac told me he was going to call you. And I was like, yeah, good. That's good. I, yeah. I had no doubt in my mind it was going to work. And the thing I think that I'm going to say you praises for a second, but what I love most about working with you was your level of attentiveness, how prepared you were, but also the fact that you know our band so well. And you were not stepping all over me. And that's a problem that I've had with some other bass players we've tried in the past. They just play too much. Um, Because at the end of the day, we need a guy that can play really good pocket. He can sit back or she can sit back and uh, just kind of let the music do what it does. And really understand that that's an incredibly important role. But playing more notes is going to completely sour the deal. Well, a huge part of you guys' sound is the keys you know it's what makes part of one of the ingredients of what makes the weird sisters the weird sisters and i knew going into it and just from jamming with you as well because we had played together a lot through the years through the years Mm -hmm. because we've known each other now for five years at least yeah so i had known like just walking into the situation i was like i just need to support what gabby is doing and if she's like soloing or something like that, I can get a little bit fancy. Just watch for that left hand. <laughs> Listen for the left. Because if she goes to the bass, I'm just playing like whole notes, half notes, quarter notes, or eighth notes. You know? And that's as fancy as I need to, to get for that, depending on how riffy you're getting. That's so invaluable, Taylor, because, I mean, a lot of musicians, um, well, I think that they're just kind of thrown by the fact that there's a keys player that also has a really strong bass aspect to their playing Mm -hmm. and they just don't even know what to do with it or if they're listening to it they don't even notice that it's happening so you've definitely spoiled me (laughs) good i'm i'm super glad to hear that i mean i would say what maybe sets me apart as a bass player too is my mentors were always keyboard players growing up. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so like I had this one guy, Taylor Mesplay. He owned the Maple Room, which was a recording studio I worked at when I was 15. It was a recording studio in my venue. Mm-hmm. And then playing with Matt Fogg, he is an incredible gigging musician. Like is booked year-round teaching lessons and also like playing in a wedding band just out there doing it. So right away, I had great experiences playing with keyboard players, and I knew to stay out of the way of them. But 
the other part of playing with you, part of your signature sound is the fact that you do use that keys bass, like as, as a player, you know? I can't even help it. Like I actually, the biggest challenge for me transitioning into this role of being more of a keyboard player has been like, oh, that left hand's creeping in again. And like, I don't even want it to sometimes, but sometimes when I hear it in my head, I just go for it. And like, I just, I have to trust that instinct because it is a huge integral part about our sound, like you said. Yeah. But for better or worse. Yes. <laughs> uh, but that's a, a part of being a disciplined player too, is knowing when to break those moments out, even if they're more limited than what they used to be. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It just takes, it takes a certain amount of listening too. That's the other thing. I feel like some musicians, especially younger ones, they just want to play as many notes as possible. Yeah. Especially bass players. Because especially bass players that started off as guitar players. As guitar players, and also they like Jocko too much. You know what I mean? And Jocko's a great bass player. Not Jocko, for our sound. Not, but exactly. <laughs> yeah. Not for your sound. Not, not. You have to know uh, context as a hired gun, too. Absolutely. And know, know your place. And um, I mean, I personally have never been a hired gun. I've been offered a lot of gigs, but I say no to them because I don't think I could serve the music just because I, I only would ever take a gig if I truly liked the music and I thought I could contribute. If I liked it, but I didn't think I would do a good job, I just say no. So I always say no. Like always. Well, that that is a discipline too, and the hired gun thing is is not for everybody. I wish I could do it, believe yeah. me. But no, you have to be you have to be aware enough to know if you can do it or not. Yeah, yeah. Self awareness is important. Um, Amen. We played up at Wandering Elm Photography too in Somerset, Kentucky. Yeah. Which was fun as fuck. The crowd was great. Lacey and Mike, who run the show, mm-hmm. they were great. They're bringing in bands from Nashville, Cincinnati, all over. And uh, it was just a cool vibe. It was a mindfuck for me. I mean, I, I said it so much that night, but we, we roll into the town in the van, right? It's this small-ass looking town. You have no idea. I'm like thinking, what's this venue going to be like? Like, it's going to be cool, but what am I expecting? We walk inside, and there's lasers everywhere. And just the green room is just stacked with all these awesome things for us to enjoy. And they fed everybody. Yeah, and the hospitality was just insane. And the vent, like, I mean, I was, I was blown away. I could not stop talking about how cool it was. I want to get as many bands there as possible because it was an incredible experience. And we gained a lot of truly solid um, friends that night that I know are going to follow up and come to more shows. And that's what we all need because, you know, Nashville is a great town, but in some ways I'm a little bit, um, I'm not as hot on Nashville anymore because you're jaded. I am. It's too saturated. You can go to a show any night of the week. Um, nowadays there's a lot of rules to go to the shows. Um, it kind of feels more like, you know, going to a kindergarten than it feels like going to an actual rock show. And I, I just, on some level, I just can't really fuck with that. So Weird Sisters is trying to play out of town as much as possible, and we want to play Nashville, but, you know, come 2022, we're not going to be probably playing here as much. We're going to be out of town. Yeah, it was, it was super, uh, super fun up there. I, 
it reminded me honestly of like a podunk town in Maine, Somerset, Kentucky. Yeah, exactly. And then you go to this this place and there, it's like nothing else that's in that town. Like we were looking for it. We couldn't find it when we first pulled up. And then we drove by and we saw the laser lights and a yeah. bunch of musicians standing out on the street smoking cigarettes. And we're like, where this, else could it be? Yeah, this is the place. There. Yeah, totally. We also played at the end, which is where my amp took a shit at. At the final shit. Yeah, I, I had flipped it on. I was in a really positive mindset too, like right before we got on stage. We get on stage, get everything all plugged in, ready to go. I flip it on and it starts making noise. And I know, I'm like, fuck. And Isaac can tell right away. Yeah. He's like, Taylor, Taylor's fucked, like, fucked right now. <laughs> he is not in the, in the place to... Uh, to do it yet, but, um, we've all been there, man. I've, oh my God, so many, that's why I don't have two bamps anymore. I love two bamps, but nope. But that bass player, do you, who was the band that was headlining that night? That was Battery House. And they had just released, it was their EP release show. Uh They're awesome. Yeah. And he was so fucking nice. He was like, yeah, man. And he even said, he's like, I have never heard my bass amp from the crowd. It sounded great. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I had never played uh, an amp that powerful before. We were, we were loud that night, but it wasn't overbearing though. No. It was powerful. Yeah. No, I I loved your sound. I mean, that, that amp, I don't know what he had, but it was great. Galgen Kruger. Ah, all right. Is that on your short list of what you're looking at? I don't know what I'm looking at yet. Um, Part of me thinks maybe... Like, well, I'm, the, the question I have in my mind right now is should I just get solid state? Should I get something that's solid state half tube? You know, because I, I want to still be able to go DI. I don't want to have to mic up every gig because I feel like that's leaving too much room for error as a bass player. Yeah, you want to have the option for the DI, especially depending on the sound guy in the room. It's, it's just good to have the option. And I could always get an external DI as well. Mm-hmm. Like a box. Yeah, like exactly. They have like a a Motown one. I don't know if you've ever seen those, Mm-mm. but it, it, it's expensive as fuck. But it replicates like the James Jamerson Motown sound. Cool. As much as you can with a piece of gear, because I feel like some of that stuff is overrated sometimes. Where you're trying to sound like another player. Yeah, you know what I mean? I do. Because um, I feel like a, a lot of players they they get gear and they want to instantly sound like whoever. It is that plays that gear. And it's not possible to do. Um, Keith Richards has this great quote where he said, give me five minutes with any guitar and any amp and it's going to sound like Keith Richards. And I feel that way about my, myself with gear. Like I'm, I'm going to sound like myself for better or worse, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I don't know what I'm going to get. I just need something with more power. Yeah. The other thing that I really liked about that show was the uh, the lights. That was Liquid Sun, right? Flooded Sun. Flooded Sun. Yeah, they are incredible. There's there's a lot of you know awesome light shows in the city, but Flooded Sun, uh, Darling Lucifer, Silver Chord Cinema, um, those guys are you know all among the top. And Spike Spike Tapa just moved back to town, and he does window light works. So there's Every band should look into getting them for a show and try to film it because they just add such a cool, vibey, visual, interactive element. Absolutely. Especially if you're a rock band and anybody in the audience is stoned. 
or or taking drugs or a little trippy or a little trippy yeah (laughs) yeah totally and then the final show we played together was over at the Dive Motel. Yes. The one and only Dive Motel. Oh, I love the Dive. I honestly can't believe that I hadn't even been there really until we started doing this show because I'm going to be hanging out there so much come, you know, summer season. And yeah. It was a cool vibe. The morning after crew put the show on. Mm-hmm. We were the only band there. Everybody else was a rap artist. That's how it is when we play with them always, and it's so cool because we, we gain a bunch of fans that they're like, what? I didn't even really like rock and roll, but, man, I liked you guys, so it's pretty cool. They, they can experience the weirdness live. They could, and it is cool to have that. I, I love um, something we want to do more of next year is kind of throw some variety shows where we do, um, like, some hip-hop, maybe a really great country act, some folk, us kind of just switch it up so that people can come out and, you know, they don't have to be confined to to one genre for the night. They can really experience a lot of different great music because Nashville is just, I mean, some of the best bands and players I've ever heard of in my life are in this city. Oh, yeah, especially in terms of bluegrass and country, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because you have, like, okay, so Josh Norfleet, if you're listening to the podcast, chances are you know he plays in the reveal and all that. But he's an incredible fucking bluegrass player because that's what he grew up playing. Mm-hmm. So he's really a bluegrass player disguised as a rock player. He just likes playing rock and roll. Yeah. And there's a million people like that in this city that have roots in something else. And part of the thing that's been fun doing the podcast is learning that, learning how other people have learned how to play. Mm-hmm. Like where they come from and what their you know, core inspiration is. Yeah, totally. Because everybody who moves here for the most part, is the best at wherever they're from. Mm-hmm. They're one of the best players there. It's like... And, I w- they, and then they come here and it's like, oh, small fish in a big pond. But that's, that's good because I think you, you moved to Nashville to level up. You moved to Nashville to find your people, uh, people that inspire you and that challenge you. And then, uh, you know, you either sink or you swim. The first year in Nashville is hard as fuck, too. A lot of people don't make it past the first year. They think they're going to move here and then play one show at the five spot and then, like, they're going to get signed. It's, it's fucking hilarious that I, I don't know how anyone can think that way, but I've seen it time and time again. Oh, yeah. Well, and maybe this is something you can relate to as well, but I've been thinking more recently, now that I'm becoming the oldest person usually in the fucking room now and I'm only 30 years old... Uh, there's a, dr- a serious drop off that that happens. So people drop off in their early 20s. Maybe they get a job that their parents can get them or something like that. Then it happens again in their late 20s. Mm-hmm. So people start falling off. Well, I don't know marriage or well COVID really. I mean, man, there's a lot of bands I would love to play with now, but they're just not here anymore. And it's very sad to me. But I feel like the people who are still here that were here before the pandemic. Those are the ones that, those are the serious motherfuckers. Like, they are in it to win it. They don't give yes. a shit. They're just here. And I, I respect that a lot. Well, we all survive, too. Like, a lot of the people that still kind surviving. of... It's still going on somehow, so... Running our crew, it, it confirmed a lot for me, because I'm like, okay, everybody pretty much that I know for the most part is fairly serious about doing this. Oh, yeah. Whether or not it amounts to anything big. And I think that's... The biggest freeing thing for me and Isaac this year is that we sat down and had an honest conversation with each other and we realized that we don't care 
if this ever monetizes. We don't care if we ever are fully funded by music. What we want to do is have good enough day jobs that we can keep the lights on, and most importantly, not having anyone telling us what the fuck to do. And if we somehow, you know, were picked up by a label or a distro that we could have that kind of freedom, then we'd be game. But we've set the bar so high now, we've been DIY for so long that we just don't care if it happens or not. That's a healthy place to be. Truly. It was freeing to have that realization. Um, it takes a lot of pressure off. And once we had the realization, we've just been trying new things and just really experiencing, I think, the most growth we've ever had. Well, as a DIY group, you guys are super smart when it comes to social media. You know, we were talking about that a little bit in the beginning. Mm-hmm. But you have taught me a bunch of different things that have really helped me especially with Instagram. Like you are a gangster when it comes to Instagram. Like, I I don't know about that. (laughs) I went over to your house and you were teaching me how to choose the right hashtags, choose stuff. That's like, uh, basically a million or less, but ideally around a hundred thousand. So it's kind of a mixture you want to go for. Um, but there's really, uh, a couple main components. So the post itself doesn't have to be the highest quality, but it has to be interesting. And it has to be true to what you're trying to do, whether you're a band or a painter or a business or whatever. So you want to have the content on point. And then with the hashtags, you want to only pick relevant hashtags. So say you're you know posting maybe a video and you're out in a field Um, you want to pick some nature hashtags. You want to pick some music hashtags, but you're not going to want to pick tags that have nothing to do with either of those things. Um, And with the tags that you use, um, the variety really should be um, tags that when you search them before, um, you want to have anywhere from the smallest probably being 20,000 posts within the tag up to... um, maybe a million, but I try to keep it, you know, a couple in the 20,000 range, some in maybe the eighties to a hundreds, a couple, 200 thousands, and then I'll do maybe a million. So you do hashtag research prior to posting. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it, everything is super organized. You have drafts ready to go and potential posts you've shown me in your phone before in your notes, you have things planned out for even just random posts if you don't have something to post for, like promoting a gig, promoting music, something like that. Yeah, that's the ideal way. Lately, I haven't done that in months because I've just been too busy. So I just kind of fly by the seat of my pants and, you know, pick something and, and do it that way. But I have a, you know, in my notes app on my phone, I have the date of the post and then all the tags I use for that date so I can keep a record of it. And I thumb through them and sometimes I'll recycle previous tags I've used that I knew were very relevant and did good for the post. So like common ones I'll use, um, regardless of the post of his music, I'll use, um, you know, indie band or indie bands. Um, Alt rock is a good one. Nashville music, Nashville musician is good. Um, and then there's just kind of a, a couple other staples I'll go to. But definitely I don't do more than 11 usually. That's kind of the sweet spot. And when I do my research, I will go through the tags I'm picking and I'll like maybe the most recent 10 that have been uh, used in the tag. So that when I go to the other tags, if I see that 
those posts overlap across the tags, I won't use them. Because what do you what do you mean by that? So say I used Alt Rock and I used Indie Band. So I'll look at Alt Rock and I'll like the most recent maybe ten. Um, and then if I go to the other tag um, for Indie Band, if I see that some of those posts already have likes for me liking it in the other tag, I won't use it because the algorithm um, won't do as well if you are kind of cross-posting, if that makes sense, like using common tags. Yeah, so you basically, if I'm understanding correctly, you want to check to see that you haven't already... So you go and you research the tag, you find what it is, and then you go and look to see what other people have posted mm-hmm. with that tag. Mm-hmm. You go and you like those posts. If you see, let's say it's... The recent ones, not the, the recent top ones. ones. Yeah. And you, if it's something that you maybe three weeks ago had liked, you won't use that tag because it's too... It's not current enough or it's not... Not three weeks ago, the last hour. Okay. Yeah. Um, But again, this is a method that used to work very well. It doesn't work as well now that Facebook has uh, fully taken over Instagram. I don't really understand the new algorithm that they're using. So, and our, you know, our views and our likes have gone down, I think partially because of that. And also because we don't post as frequently as we should. If if you really want to see some growth on that platform, you really need to try and post pretty much every day or at least three times a week. Yeah. And I just, I have not had time for that for a minute, so. Well, what you instructed me to do that helped me was posting five times a week mm-hmm. and knowing, for a minute I was using uh, kind of like a, a press, like a printing press, what I was going to do Yeah. every single week. Like Monday was a base video, Tuesday was Man of Science, Man of Faith, Wednesday was the Poptimist, Thursday was... Maybe something I'm reading or watching that I really liked. And then mm-hmm. Friday, it was just kind of a random free day if something was on my mind to share that. Yeah. And for me, those are all things that I'm interested in. It goes back to the authentic thing that you were kind of talking about. You want to basically, because at the end of the day, we're trying to get as many eyes and ears on what we do as possible. Mm-hmm. That's that it's not the main goal of doing this, but it certainly helps with the creative aspect. If you yeah. have more people listening, liking, watching, all of that, there's more chances that you can play a gig here, play a gig there, do this. Do, you know, more opportunities arise if you have a social media presence. Absolutely, and that's just the way it is now. Um, and part of me uh, commends you for the fact that you recognize that's what it is because there's a lot of people in Nashville that don't really want to fuck with that stuff. Well, nobody wants to fuck with it because it's annoying. And for me too, I think it, it, it really can cheapen the, the art, um, which I don't like, but I will say like 90% of all the show offers we get, anything good that's ever come to us has come through Instagram. That's how we met. I know you found me because I played sax and you yes. wanted a sax player on <laughs> Which I don't think there's even any fucking sax on that song. Yeah, whatever. But I, I played something that was kind of too weird, I think, to be used. I, I liked everything you played, but in the end it, it turned out good. But yeah, that was the whole way that we had met was through Instagram. You had posted like a funny video of you playing saxophone. Yeah. And I was like, this is funny as fuck. And she's good. She can play. <laughs> and then, of course, the rest is all history. Totally. But yeah, I think the most important thing is 
Don't put too much thought into it. Don't, you know, the perfect polished edited thing. Some of the best stuff that we've done that's gotten the most attention has just been heat of the moment, an iPhone, not the greatest quality, but, you know, it's just real. And I think people have a hunger for um, for real content because they're just bombarded with so much of the polished kind of fake shit. Yeah. Absolutely. And the other thing that I, I value in my friendship with you is that uh, you were just flat out with me one day. You were like, you need to get a new phone so you can post better. Yeah. You need to have more of an Instagram presence. Why did you use the Nashville hashtag that has like 2 million likes? Yeah. You were just <laughs> disgusted looking at everything that no, I was posting. Not disgusted. It's just more like, you know, I like you. I want to help you. Yes. I want all my friends to succeed. I didn't take it. I didn't take it personally is what I'm trying to say. Well, I did it because I knew you wouldn't. Yeah. I like the fact that you were real. (laughs) And also, I respond, I think, in a weird way. Maybe this is because of how I grew up. But I respond to that shit. Like, I I listen. You know, like, Mm -hmm. when I was younger, I didn't really know how to, uh, to listen if someone was being nice and try and tell me something delicately. I would just come at them if they were, yeah. if they were, if I thought they were being quote unquote too nice. Now I can, I understand people's other people who have different communication styles better than me. Mm-hmm. That's and part of growing up. Yeah. You know, you, you have a, enough awkward situations when you, hopefully if you have any self-awareness one day, you'll realize that, oh shit, maybe I'm the problem. It's not them. And that's when the real growth can happen. It's happened to me. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, for, it's happened to me, too. You know, I, I think for a long time, I had always chased this idea of success. I want success. I want success. I want to be successful. It wasn't even about being famous or making a lot of money or anything like that. Because by the time I got to Nashville when I was 23... I didn't fully know what I was walking into, but I understood I didn't know what I was walking into. Um, and plus, I had been in a bunch of bands and done that whole thing, been the side man. And I just knew I'm like rock and roll. It's very rare for it to turn into an arena or stadium rock act now. Mm-hmm. That is not the path that I'm going to be able to, to go down. I wasn't sure what it was going to be. You know, I didn't know what I was going to do. But I just knew pretending like it was 1973 was not the correct method. Well, yeah, because it's 2021. And I, I do think a lot of bands, it goes back to what I said before, they come here and they think they're going to play like one or two shows and it's all just going to happen. But most of the work that you have to do is behind the scenes. It's the shows you go out to that you're not playing, that you're out there supporting your friends, you're meeting new people, you're networking. That's the true work that will give you opportunity. It's not just the stuff that you put on yourself. Do you know what your Enneagram type is? Yes, I was, um, fuck, what was I? I think I was an INTJ. That, that is a... Well, that's a Myers-Briggs. That's Myers-Briggs. Yeah, no, I don't. I actually don't remember what I was. <laughs> what are you? Uh, so I'm a type one. I learned that from... Isaac's brother, when he came on the podcast, he told me. Oh, Justin? Yeah. <laughs> Justin came on for an episode. Great episode. Go back and listen to it. Um, but yeah, I, I did a, uh, a Myers-Briggs last night, and I was E in something. 
But the personality type was called the, uh, the commander. Ah, well, that makes sense. I just thought that was, was funny. It said 3% of people in the population are commanders. And then the first thing I did was I immediately went to the flaws section and just read all about that. Did it resonate with you? 100% it did. Wow. Weird. I just have a, uh, it basically said you have like a brash communication <laughs> style. Yeah, it's me for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is another thing I had to learn with age of how to reach different personality types. Cause some people respond to that. Well, mm-hmm. you know, I respond to that. Well, if someone's just straight with me and they're like, do this, mm-hmm. I want you to do this. I don't necessarily need a reason why a reason why helps. But if it's uh, like in a music situation, if it's someone, someone whose vision vision that I trust, then I just do what they say. Yeah. But you have to trust them. Yeah. If you don't, you don't have that level of respect and trust. It's really, at least for me, it's really hard to, to take orders from people. <laughs> Where can people find you at? Uh, well, theweirdsistersband.com is the hub. Um, if you want to smoke a joint one night and go down the rabbit hole, everything on there is a link. So you can click on anything, and it'll take you to another part of the website. Um, Isaac did it all. He did everything. He made gifts homemade Microsoft Paint and uploaded them to the website. Um, so go there. All our links are there. We're most active on Instagram at the underscore weird sisters. Um, we have a Facebook, but I ah, fuck Facebook. Um, and Facebook's TikTok, for old people. It is. It is. It's, it's only helpful really to, you know, have your events on there so people can see when you're playing and stuff. But yeah. I, I, I'm just disenchanted with Facebook. <laughs> Everybody is. I know. <laughs> And you have some gigs coming up in December? Yeah, we have um, one on the 11th, which is going to be at the basement, the original basement. OG. Yep, and there's an awesome, awesome band coming down from New York for that called the Bobby Lees. Um, and then, of course, the Ragcoats. They're local. They're awesome. They're going to be playing, too, that night. So they, it's a later show. But They had played with us at the Color Block. Yes. And that was my first time seeing them. Yeah, they were, they they were really so good. killer. Yeah. Very excited for that. Because they have kind of like a, uh, a surfy vibe to them. Like, they have these really great musical sections where they're doing like the – almost like the Miserloo Dick Dale thing where it's like mm-hmm. bum, 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 bum. Um, and they're just yeah. kind of going out there and jamming for a second. But their songs are good and their melodies are good. And they're so high energy. Like, yeah. I mean, I've we've been, I mean, playing with them for years now. They're one of those bands that I know they're never, they're never going to stop. And I just love that so much because that's, those are the kinds of people that I really want to surround myself with. And did you mention you have, do you have any other gigs this month here in town? Um, we have one this weekend um, on the 3rd at the Spring Water on Friday, and then we have one Saturday in Bowling Green at Ted Balls. Nice. And then on New Year's Eve, we're playing um, Clarksville, a house show. Really cool one. So Fuck yeah. Stay so tuned for that. Go check out The Weird Sisters if you haven't already done it, and uh, go see them live. Yeah, say hi. We'll be there. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Taylor. See you next week. 